Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Luke chapter 5. Shall we do it? Luke chapter 5. We've been walking through the book of Luke. I will get there in a second. It'll take me a while, though. A little long introduction here. So if you have been with us at Hill City, we've spent an incredible amount of time this past year in the Old Testament. Back uh, last summer, we did a series on the book of Judges, uh, which I had never taught before, never even studied before. It's fascinating. Back in the fall, we started in August and went all the way till Christmas. You remember, did a series called Redemption Through History. And what we did is we started in Genesis and walked our way through the big picture story of the Bible all the way to the birth of Jesus and kind of connected the dots between the beginning and then when Jesus comes. If, if you're new to, to the Bible, Christianity, I would encourage you to check out that podcast uh, from those sermons to help you kind of understand how the Bible is laid out. But if you've been with us this year, here's what you know as we've studied the Jewish people. They are very, very quick to turn away from God, start chasing after false idols, and find themselves in a big mess. Do you guys remember this? I mean, their story is a story of up and down, up and down, up and down. And we, as we study them, what we see is what happens is God called them to himself. He says, you're my people, be faithful. And as they remain faithful, God protects them. And they don't make a bunch of stupid decisions. But then as, they, as generation comes and goes, they start a slow wander away. And they, as a nation, start to wander away from God, and then God allows this other nation to come in and conquer them. So the first time, it's the nation of Assyria, which if you've studied history, those guys are ruthless. And when these other nations come and conquer the Jews, it is our 9-11 on steroids. is a massacre. For another nation to come in and conquer, um, many of the men are killed. The women are used as property. You can imagine what kind of property that is. The children are either killed or taken on exile. Like, it is awful. And so they get it conquered, and eventually they kind of get restored again. They wander away again from God, and it gets so bad that they're even, the, the nation of Israel is even offering their children as sacrifices to these gods. Well, God allows another nation to come in, and occupy them, take over. And so you have a bunch of these Jewish people get taken off in exiles to the, to the country of Babylon. And while they're there, like the book of Daniel, that's where they're there. So they're, all the Jews, or many of them, are in exile in Babylon because they have wandered away from God. God has allowed this nation to come and conquer them. And it is dark, dark times in their history. Well, they return from exile back to their land. They re return back to Jerusalem. And how do they find Jerusalem? They find it in ruins. The wall is torn down. Their city has been destroyed. Their beautiful temple that Solomon built is leveled. And among this faithful group of, of people of Israel, they know their history of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There's this realization like, guys, we can't do this again. We cannot wander away from God and do our own thing and expect God to protect us. We, can't, we just can't do it. And so there's this call of the people of Israel that are left after this exile. They've come back to their homeland. It's destroyed. There's this call of them, guys, we must be faithful. 
And we see this. It's, a, it's an Old Testament book, the book of Ezra, chapter 6, verse 19. It'll be on the screen. Here, here's what we have a record of. On the 14th day of the month, the returned exiles that came back from Babylon, they kept the Passover. Like they may have not been able to do this while they're exiles. Finally, they're back in their own land. They keep the Passover for the priests and the Levites have purified themselves together and all of them were clean. They slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. And it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone else who had joined them. And here we go. And separated himself from the uncleanliness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. There's this return, and there's this time where they come together like, guys, we can't do it. We, we must stay faithful. And so they celebrate this meal, rejoicing that God has brought them back in his mercy and kind of telling themselves, like, let's be faithful now. And they kept the key they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And it turned their heart and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. So now God's even allowed these other nations to help rebuild so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So this is about 400 years before Jesus comes on the scene. Israel as a whole, they come back to their land and there's this like joyful restoration of the people of God come together in God's protection. And here's the call. Now, Israel, be faithful. Stay here. Live right here. So as that generation dies and another generation dies, there's still this pull of we must be faithful to God. We are not going to allow ourselves to go off like our ancestors before. We must remain faithful. Fast forward 100 years before Jesus comes. There's this group of men that get together and they decide they're going to form this group. And the reason they're going to form this group is they want to keep Israel focused on Yahweh. That's their word for what we, we call God. You know what that group is called? The Pharisees. So 100 years before Jesus, this party of the Pharisees form. And Pharisee, Royce told you last week, means separated ones. Here is the heart of the Pharisees. We must be separate as Israel. We must be separate from all these other nations that worship all these crazy gods and do all these, like we must separate ourselves. We must stay centered around God. This word he gave us in the Old Testament, we must keep Israel there. And among the Jews, the Pharisees were the ones that fought to keep Israel focused. And they were among the men that were most worthy of respect. They were passionate, more passionate than we are in their devotion to their faith. And they had the responsibility, it was their job as teachers of the law, teachers of these Old Testament books, to keep Israel faithful. That's their job. One historian kind of writing about the Pharisees, as I was trying to wrap my mind around them over the past few weeks, this is what a historian said, talking about the Pharisees. They had a bulk of the nation as their ally. Women especially were in their hands. They had the greatest influence upon the congregations so that all acts of public worship, prayers, sacrifices were performed according to their injunctions. Like they are the ones in charge of keeping Israel focused. 
And here's what they did. They wrestled with, we have these books of the Old Testament. What does it look like to stay faithful as a community to what God gave us back then? And they were trying to wrestle with how do we work, how do we keep us, ourselves centered on Yahweh in every aspect of life? Now, when you hear the word Pharisee, what's the first word you think of? Hypocrite? Yeah? Rebellious? Judgmental? But if you're a Jew living in those days, these guys are preserving Israel. And if you would sit down across from a Pharisee over a cup of coffee, he would say, my job is to keep Israel focused on Yahweh. That was their mission. And they are, as a group, they're the ones that were in charge of that. And as a group, they knew the law. Here's the reality. They knew the Bible, the Old Testament, way better than any of us did. Do. Most, most of them had the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible, memorized. Memorized. Like they knew their Bible. They knew the commandments. Their job are to keep false teachers, false prophets, people from coming in and leading the people of Israel away. And then this new teacher shows up. And this new teacher comes from this place named, called Galilee that's a little bit on the outside. And he starts coming in and he does some things that they cannot explain. Royce talked last week. They see this new teacher and they see him heal a paralytic. And they're saying to themselves in Luke chapter 5, it says this, an amazement seized them all, the Pharisees, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. These group of Pharisees see this new teacher roll into town. They're like, okay, this guy has power. This guy has authority. Demons listen to him. He heals people. And they're wondering who this person is because their job is to protect Israel. Think of them as pastors, shepherds over a group of people. And all of a sudden this new teacher comes in with these new ideas and new thoughts and they're thinking, okay, who is this guy? One of these Pharisees goes to learn and try to have a conversation, see what this guy's about. His name is Nicodemus. You've heard of Nicodemus before. We'll, we'll see it in John chapter three. It'll be on the screen. Nicodemus goes to Jesus. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, now notice how he calls him. There's automatically this, this understanding, like this guy has authority. He calls him Rabbi, teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Here's what Nicodemus says. Jesus, we know that what you're doing, like God must be behind you. But Nicodemus is cautious. His job is to protect Israel. His job is to keep them from wandering away. And this, this guy's got some things that are different. Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says to him, hey, listen, yeah, if you, if you want to be in God's kingdom, you have to be born again. 
Nicodemus says to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like Nicodemus is really confused, like born again. How's that going to work? Like he's supposed to crawl back in. Like every time I see this, anyone seen uh, Ace Ventura part two when nature calls when he comes out of the rhinoceros? Like every time, this is where my mind goes. Every single time. Watch it. Millennials watch it. It's just great. So Nicodemus is confused. And I understand why, rightfully so. Verse 5, Jesus answered, No, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying like this new birth is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone else who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus, they have this interaction. Jesus kind of tells them what he's about. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? Jesus, we don't have this teaching. This isn't part of what the history of the rabbis have brought down to us. Jesus, our job is to keep Israel focused. How can these things be? And Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. So you have this man, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and because of his job of protecting Israel, he comes to Jesus and he's trying to understand. Jesus, help me understand here what's going on. Because I don't get it. And as a group, the Pharisees, by the way, there's about 6,000 Pharisees. When we think of Pharisees, I think a lot of times we think it's a group of like 12 men. No, huge number of people. And the Pharisees as a whole are trying to wrap their minds around who this Jesus person is. You know why they're trying to do that? That's their job. That's exactly why they are there, to protect Israel from false teachers. And the things Jesus says are starting to not match up with the things that they say and believe. Let me step back again in order to understand the, understand the Pharisees. They have the, this written law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Okay, starts in Genesis. And that was God's gift to them to say, here's what it looks like to live the way I've called you to live as a group of people, Jews called to my name. Here's what the Pharisees did. They took those Five, first five books of the Bible, the, the word given from God, and they added upon that with what's called the oral law or the written law. Think about rules built on that, passed down from generation to generation to generation to rabbi. So that by the time you get to this time of Jesus, they have rules about everything. They have this oral law that's been passed down with all kinds of regulations and rules about what you can do, what you can't do, built off of the first five books of the Bible. But here's the, here's the trick, here's the, here's the problem. The first five books of the Bible are authoritative, they're from God. These oral laws they're not authoritative. They're not from God. But they have now believed that they are authoritative. And they had rules about every part of Jewish life. And the belief among the Pharisees was, these are not just our rules. These are God's as well. That's why Luke will say, in, 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 or I'm sorry, yeah, Jesus will say in Luke chapter 11, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint, and rue in every herb according to their oral law. 
and you neglect justice and love of God, God's law. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So here's what happens when we read the Bible. This is what happens to me when I read the Bible, probably you. We as humans, and I think it happens in life, like we have a tendency to just automatically declare people good or bad. Is that fair? Like, good or bad, Hitler, first word that comes to your mind. Bad, right? We, we have this tendency to say, well, good or bad. As you read the New Testament, question, word Pharisee comes across the Bible, good or bad? Bad, right? Let me challenge us on this. Because here's the reality of the Pharisees. If you could sit down with one of these Pharisees, have a cup of coffee and say, why are you so against Jesus right here? Here's what they would say, because Jesus is going to lead our people away from God. He's a false teacher. He's against what we've been saying, and he is dangerous. They would have thought that they were in defense of Yahweh. You know why they thought that? That was their job. To watch out for false teachers that would lead Israel away. These were faithful men trying to honor God, and they're trying to understand what to do with Jesus. Now, it's in that context, let's jump into Luke chapter 5. And as we read this story today, we're going to read it through the narrative, through the lens of these Pharisees whose job is to protect Israel, keep them focused on Yahweh. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out. and He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, we read that, we're like, oh, that's a cool story. Jesus calls a tax collector. Um, in the Roman system, the role of collecting taxes, so Rome had occupied a huge section of land, including this area where the Jews live. Because they occupied so much land, they needed to collect taxes to fund their military. And so what they would do, instead of sending a bunch of Roman tax collectors into these areas, what they would do is they would offer contracts to collect taxes so let's say that we're, we live in the, in the Jewish town of Bethlehem. Rome would offer a contract up for Bethlehem to collect taxes. And someone, one of us, one of us Jews, would turn our back on our people and say, hey, I will bid for that contract to collect taxes. Once he was given the contract to collect taxes, let's say that Rome decided that Bethlehem owes $10,000 every year in taxes. It was now this tax collector's job to collect $10,000 and send it to Rome. And as long as Rome got their money, no questions were asked. But here was the problem with this. There was not very many regulations on how to collect that $10,000 or how much you could collect on top of $10,000. So let's say that I got the contract for Bethlehem. I was in contract with Rome. I got to get $10,000 from you guys. Here's what oftentimes would do. You'd have a head tax collector that would they would employ about four, five, six, ten, depending on the territory. Other people, kind of think thugs, that would go out and collect taxes on my behalf. So when we see this guy named Levi, 
all of a sudden we know that's a Jewish name. Now, you know Levi by a different name. He has two names. His name is Levi Matthew. He wrote one of the Gospels, the book of Matthew, same guy. Matthew, Levi, is a tax collector who is probably working for a bigger tax collector who has contracted with the government. He has turned his back on the Jews. He has sold out. And if you're a Jew living in this time in Bethlehem, you are poor. You are trying to, trying to scrounge a living out of a little piece of property you have. You have a little garden. You have some, a couple cows. If you're, if you're rich, you have a couple cows. Maybe a goat. And imagine one day you're sitting at home with your wife or your kids. You're kind of looking at your little, your little plot. It's not much, but it's what I have. And in the, in the horizon, you see some, a dust cloud on the road. And here comes four or five guys dressed in leather jackets. They would be riding Harleys if they were invented yet, but they aren't yet. And they show up in your place. And you say to your wife and kids, honey, take the kids inside. Shut the door. So as a man, you walk out. You say, guys, how can I help you? They say, we're here to collect taxes. You say, well, I've already paid taxes. Yeah, we're just going to take a look around. So they walk over here. Oh, man, it looks like your garden's a little bit bigger than it was last year. Have you paid for that extra space? Well, that'll be 20 bucks. They walk into your barn. Oh, new milk cow, huh? Yeah, 20 bucks. And you can do nothing about it. Because if you resist them you're resisting the Roman government. There's a little place called the Colosseum that'll take care of that. How do you feel about your little Jewish friend, Levi, Matthew? You hate him. So because there's no accountability for tax collectors, very few guidelines, there's corruption, there's exploitation, it's all around. Levi's sitting in a tax booth we learn from another gospel that he's by a sea, so probably his job is to sit and his fishermen come in from their catch. He's probably like, yeah, how much? Yeah, 50 bucks, that's your tax for today. And you could do nothing about it. You had to pay or you'd be arrested. Levi, Matthew, has sold out. He's not following Yahweh. He's all about money. He's turned his back on his countrymen, and he is now the enemy working against God and his countrymen and his good Pharisees. He is the problem with your culture. He and people like him are the ones that will potentially lead your people away from God, and you'll find your women and children being killed or taken into slavery once again. And Jesus, this new teacher, walks up to him and says, hey, Come follow me. You are now my disciple. What? I always try to think what would be equivalent in our day. It's hard sometimes with the culture, different culture. Maybe it would be like this. I show up next Sunday and I bring a man up on stage and say, hey, here's your new pastor. He's the leader of the KKK in Mississippi. Might be the equivalent. Like these are the people that's a good Pharisee you were trying to protect Israel from. And Jesus says to him, come follow me. 
your disciple. And, and notice, Luke says, immediately he leaves everything, which is so cool, right? I mean, this guy is sold out. He wants nothing to do with Yahweh. He's, he's, he's working for the government. He's all about money. And Jesus comes up to him and says, hey, you are now going to follow me. And he's like, okay. Just speaks to the sovereignty of God. Jesus didn't have to talk him into it. It's like, no, you're doing this. And so Levi, Matthew, drops everything, walks away from a lucrative career, walks away from his government. He's probably got a price on his net head now for walking away from his, his job and collecting taxes. And Jesus makes such an impact of his life that he writes 28 chapters to tell us who this Jesus is. You can read the book of Matthew. Verse 29. So he's just called Levi to be his disciple. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there were a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So Jesus walked up. He's called this tax collector. And so now this guy's a follower of Jesus. He does what he knows how to do. Let's throw a party. Right? And I'm going to invite all of my tax collector buddies and all of the, the people are on the outside that, that, you know, we're not in normal Jewish society because we're all, whether we're a prostitute, whether we're a, a tax collector, we're, we're a sinner, we're all on the outside, but let's just party together. So he has a big party in honor of Jesus. Now, Pharisees, do you see your problem with Jesus? This is the moral filth of our society. And now they're on Jesus' side. Now, according to their oral law, remember they have the written law given by God. They have the oral law handed down. They have very strict rules. One of the rules was the Pharisee, a teacher, was not allowed to eat with common people. Well, not only is Jesus eating with common people, he's eating with the worst of the common people. Side note, here's the problem with the oral law. It's not authoritative. And one of the things I want to make sure we understand, uh, and we have a lot of young believers here, anytime that you come to church, you listen to a podcast, you listen to someone teach the Bible, here's what we have. We have a flawed man teaching a perfect book. My words are not authoritative. The Bible is. Now, I will do my best to labor and toil and try to bring to us the Word of God and with as much clarity, as much, much truth as possible. But guess what? There will be times that I will be wrong. And in some of your beliefs, some of the ones you're like, oh, there might be a chance you're wrong. Because we are flawed people trying to understand a perfect book. Well, they don't quite understand that. Remember, their oral law is, no, I'm right. <clears throat> Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now do you understand their question? See, my goal here today is to try to help us think without our biases of reading the Bible in 2018 and just our automatic idea of who we think the Pharisees are, can you put yourself in their shoes for a minute and see why they're asking that question? Jesus, 
Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Now, here's the thing about the Bible. It's kind of like a text message. You can't always tell tone of voice in a text message, can you? You ever made that mistake and got really mad at someone like, I was joking. Here's what we don't have. I wish we had an audio version of this. Because I always wonder, there's another time with Jesus too. What's the tone of voice here? There's two, there's two possible directions. Why do you eat and drink with tax collection sinners? There's that one. Or, Jesus, why do you eat tax collection sinners? See the difference? And I don't know which one it is. See, from the Pharisees' perspective, these outsiders were the ones that threatened the Jews' faithfulness to God. Remember, your job, their job as Pharisees, keep Israel centered. And these outsiders like Levi, this tax collector, and all of his posse are people that are against Yahweh. Anyone, uh, you guys follow the news this week, anyone hear about uh, Jesse Duplantis, the televangelist, televangelist this week that's asking for $54 million for his jet? Raise your hand if you've seen this article. Yeah, several of you have seen it, right? And uh, so I, I decided I've got to do, I've got to learn, I've got to do some research on this guy and see what this is about. And so I learned some more about this guy. Actually, he's asking $54 million for his fourth jet, okay? Um, now, let me back up. I don't have a problem with a guy having a private jet. If he flies around every single day to new cities, do your thing. And, but I had to look at the heart of this guy and trying to understand where he's coming from. So I found a video with him and another kind of one of his prosperity gospel buddies there. They were talking. They were kind of telling the why behind why they do what they do, why they do what they do. And here's what he said, a few phrases he says. I can't hear God from a commercial plane. Like at times, I just get a word from the Lord and I just want to stand up and say, hallelujah, God. But I, you know, you can't do that on a commercial plane. They'll look at you and think, what's this guy doing? Later on, he'll say, and besides, I'm going around and preaching night after night after night to all these, and you want me to get on a tube, talking about a plane, a tube full of demons? All the sinners. How am I going to be in the anointing of the Holy Spirit and get me on a tube full of demons in the sky? And he goes on and on. He talks about how God told him this, and he has a, he has a very, very specific conversation with God. He said, God said, Jesse, yes, God. Jesse, your faith is not big enough. Why is that, God? J Jesse, you have stagnated. You need to believe God for something bigger. And it just happened to be a jet. Okay? By the way, if you think that's cool, come talk to me after the gathering. I'd love to talk to you about a jet. That'd be cool. Um, so here's what I, I, it's about a five-minute video. You need to watch it. It's just, it's just, you'll have a good laugh. Maybe if you get bitter real easy, don't watch it. I showed this to our staff just for fun. So Thursday, we always have this time on, on Thursday afternoon when we get together and I kind of talk through the sermon with our staff, just make sure I'm thinking clear and all that. And so before I did, I showed them, it's about a five-minute clip, and I just, and I, I put it on the office and I just sat back and watched. And it's so funny because all the personality of our staff comes out when they watch something like this. So you have Brad that just sits back there and rocks like this in his chair, just arms focused, just like this. You have Molly, who is a, who is a Division I soccer player, just gets mad <clears throat> like that as she's watching him say things. Um, you know, Katie's like, <laughs> she looks like she's about to cry. Like all of our, it's so funny. All, our personalities just totally come out, right? We get done watching this and they're just like, oh, that's, that's the attitude in the room, right? One of them, uh, one, of, uh, one of our guys says, I just want to like throw up right now. Um, 
Michael Wilson said, he said, it's just so frustrating because these guys have such a reach and they're often representing what Christianity is about and it's just like wrong. And like our whole staff, they're just fired up, right? I thought I'd get one of them to cuss. None of them did, but I mean, they're just ready to fight. I mean, they're ready to fight someone. Here's what I told him. How you feel right now is exactly how the Pharisees feel with Jesus. This is totally backwards. And that part of you that just wants to go down and like slap him, slap this guy with the jab and be like, dude, come on. That's how they feel. See, what's their fear? Their fear is they realize Jesus has authority. They realize he's something. Their fear is that he will lead people off track. Verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, I wish we knew the tone of voice. There's two sides. Jesus, well, those who are well have no need of a physician. I've come for the sick. Moron. Or, guys, I know you're protective of Israel. Listen, I've come from God, and here's who this God is. He's about the sick, not the righteous. Now, this is me, flawed human. I think it's that, especially right now. This is early on in his ministry. I think it's that response. Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, writes his gospel. He writes the same story. He actually adds one more thing that Jesus says. Matthew chapter, chapter 12, when they heard this, they said, those who are well have no need of physician. Those who are sick, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus quoting the book of Hosea. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's what Jesus is telling them, I believe. Guys, you're passionate. You've protected Israel. You've kept them centered. But you're missing it. Just, you're missing it. The nature and character of the God that I come from, that I am, <laughs> is one that is for those that are sick and broken and downhearted and the outcast. That's who he's for. And I believe it's this invitation of Jesus to tell the Pharisees, guys, let's get, like, I love your passion, but let's get on board with who this real, G, who this real God is. This God is about mercy. He's not about sacrifice. He's not about living the perfect life and you got to do this, this, this. He's not about that. He's about mercy. He has mercy for you and he wants you to have mercy for others. The Pharisees right here, I believe, have an opportunity to repent and be followers of Jesus and say, okay, let's, let's be who God has really called us to be now that we have a better picture of who that is. But as a whole, remember there's about 9,000. As a whole, they will do the opposite. And they will decide that Jesus is the enemy and this will be a turning point over these next few weeks as we read some of these stories to where they have this curiosity, this interest, this amazement of Jesus to, as a whole, will reject him and want to eliminate him. So where did the Pharisees miss it? Because again, what I've tried to show you is these are passionate people that love God. 
least their version of God. They're passionate. Where did they miss it? I think there's two big areas they miss it. Here's the first, and I think it's the most important because it bleeds into the second. The first way they missed it, they missed that as a Pharisee, they missed their individual need for a Savior, their individual need for righteousness apart from their actions. So when Jesus says, listen, guys, I came for the sick, they never once thought, oh, you know what? The sick, that's me. They automatically thought, oh, yeah, those other people. So for the Pharisees, the religion that they had adopted is one of morality, outward morality, where Jesus is all about inward transformation. So in the Pharisees' pursuit, because that's what they were pursuing, righteousness, to be made right by God, what they had come to believe was that their righteousness would be found by how well they did the law. If they kept all the commandments and all the ones that they added on top of them, then God would look at them and say, you know what, well done, Pharisee, good job. And they miss the heart of God that says, no, I have mercy for you because you can't do it. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believes God. Look what it says. And he believed the Lord and was counted to him as righteousness. How was Abraham considered righteous? He believed God. The biggest question, and one of the bigger questions I get from people, how did people become Christians or, or followers of God before Jesus died? Right? If you go back 200 years before Jesus comes, it's not, okay, you need to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So how was one counted righteous? How did one get to heaven? You know how? Believing God. Believing that God's promises were true and that he would send a Messiah. That's what they were called to do. And in believing, they would be declared righteous, forgiven. And now the law was given. Now that you're righteous, here's how to live the way God wants you to live. The Pharisees reversed the order. They said, if we're going to be righteous, we must, and the rest of Israel must, follow the law perfectly, completely. All these rules, if we will do those good enough, we will finally be right with God. That's why, like, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul comes along and he says, listen, guys, by grace you have been saved through faith, not actions. And this is not of your own doing. Like, you did nothing to get this salvation. It was simply given to you by faith. It's the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, here's where the Pharisees missed it. They believed it was a result of works, so therefore, guess who could boast? Them. The overwhelming message, though, of Jesus is, you can't do enough. You cannot follow the law perfectly. When Scott led us in that song, All We Sinners Sang, one of my favorite songs. I always feel like we got to have something in our hand, like waving it back and forth while we're doing that. Here's the whole point of that song. It's falling out the narrative of the redemption of what Christ did. And what, what's, our, what's our part in that? We are passive watching. We are watching passively, just singing like, yep, that's what Jesus did. You did nothing to earn your salvation. That's what that song's about. We are passive recipients just sitting back, singing like, wow, look how God is. And so because they believed their righteousness was based on their performance, their, their, all their things that they did, they put that on their fellow Jews. And if you're a Jew living in that day, you are burdened down with a list of rules that you have to follow. Like some of you screw up in the, in the 
um, youth group culture in this real small, small legalistic church, like, you got to do this, do this, do this. And we thought that was a burden. You should have been a Jew. And there were rules on how much you could walk during the Sabbath. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy rules. That's why Jesus comes on the scene to these group of people and he looks at him and he says, listen, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me, all of you that are trying to accomplish your own salvation by your rules and you never feel like you're good enough. Yeah, come on. I will give you rest. And the Pharisees missed that. And so that grace to say, come to me broken, like you don't have to fix yourself, just come to me broken. That grace that Jesus offered infuriated the Pharisees. That's the first big mistake they made. They believed their righteousness was based on their performance. And it bled into, I think, the second biggest mistake of the Pharisees. And we're going to see it over and over and over with them as we see stories about them. Because they believed their righteousness was based on their performance, they looked down on everyone else that did not live up to their standards. So they refused to show mercy to other people. Like they had a disdain and disgust for broken people. Like when, when Jesus calls Levi the tax collector, what if instead, instead of saying like, oh my gosh, how could he do that? What if it was like, wow, that's how big God is? He can change the heart of a tax collector in one second? Like they could have totally been amazed by grace. When a sinful woman who's been a woman of the city comes down and just like fall, they could have been like, God, you're so good. But they didn't. And they refused to show mercy for others. And so Jesus says to him, listen, God is about showing mercy, not about sacrifice, not about what you can do. So in their faithful observance of the law, they were unwilling to show mercy to anyone else. And Jesus comes on the scene, and it's the great reversal, where the Pharisees were the center of Jewish society and the center of what it means to be a faithful follower of God. Now, all these people on the outside are now in the center. And these people that were on the inside found, now find themselves on the outside, and that's when they decide, Jesus must go. And now, as a whole, that becomes their mission. So remember I said, and we read stories, we, we look at people, we're very quick to just automatically say like good guys and bad guys. And probably every time as you've read the Bible, you looked at the Pharisee, you've thought like, man, that's a bad guy. Here's what I hope you might see today. I hope you might read the story of the Pharisee and read the story of the tax collector and not say, you know, which one am I? Like, am I the Pharisee? Am I the tax collector? Here's what I hope you might say. I'm both. That every time you read the Pharisees in the Bible, you won't say, oh, those are the bad guys. You'll say, man, I see a lot of myself in them. Because I think there's this tense and we read it and we say, oh, those are the bad guys. I'm sure glad I'm not like the Pharisee. That's exactly what they said. I'm sure glad I'm not like that person. Here's hopefully as we read the Bible, we say, oh my gosh, I'm just like them. And I'm just like Levi the tax collector because I turned my back on God and did my own thing. 
for whatever, and, and God just called me out of that, and I've done nothing to get here, but here I am. Like, hopefully when we read the Bible, we see both. But as I read this today, as I studied this, when I first started this sermon, I was going to do it about Matthew, Levi, it's just such a cool story. We're going to celebrate that God restores broken people. And then I found myself saying, Daniel, not only are you broken, you're the Pharisee. Because I went to Art Walk Friday night downtown, and I walked around. I don't know if you're like me. How quick is it is to be like, gosh, get your act together, man. Anyone else, or is that just me? I'm the Pharisee. But I realize I can't love the person that I'm disgusted by. I can't show mercy when I see disgust, when I see, oh. And so what I want to center us around is we'll see the Pharisees over and over and over again for a second is maybe to ask ourselves, do I have a little, little bloodline coming from the Pharisees in me? Like, a few questions. Anyone besides me ever thought their standing with God was based on their actions? Anyone messed up really bad on Wednesday and thought, gosh, there's no way I can go to church? That's trying to base my stand with God on my actions. Anyone done something really good that week and be like, man, I hope other people, saw, I hope my Christian friends saw that. Like, man, I really, yeah, that's Pharisee. Anyone beside me, besides me, find it hard to confess sin? Like you, you mess up and my immediate response is, man, I hope Brad and Michael don't find out about that. Why? Because I care more about what people think about me than what pleasing God. That's Pharisee. which the gospel would say, hey, you have nothing to hide. Confess sin, repent, let's move on. Anyone else constantly compare yourselves to other Christians to make sure you're a little better than them? You're a good Christian? That's, that's really, that's only me too? How about how we treat others? Um, anyone besides me kind of constantly looking down on people that aren't quite as buttoned down and moralistic? Like you're so quick just to be like, eh, get your stuff together, man. You ever feel disgusted when you see blatant sin? Like, like one of the things I love and I hate social media, I, I don't love it, I hate it really. Um, but it's so interesting, anytime someone falls, whether it's a Christian, whether it's a, someone like, man, we're so quick to, oh my gosh, how could someone do that? And I'm like, really? Because I know myself. Anyone quick to pass judgment on who's good, who's right, who's bad, who's wrong? So here's my goal today. As we read the story of the Pharisees, as we keep reading the story of the Pharisees, may we look at that and we see those guys aren't bad. They were people that were trying to be faithful to what they knew, and they got off track. And some of them got really wicked. And so am I. That's what I hope you say. And Levi, the tax collector, I mean, this guy was wicked. I mean, he's a crook. 
He turned his back on God. And you know what? So did I. So remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus, a Pharisee, protector of Israel. He's like, Jesus, what's going on? They have this, they have this born again conversation. We see Nicodemus a few chapters later. And the Pharisees are in a group. They're, there's a big group in together. They're talking about, what do we do with this Jesus guy? And they're trying to decide, do we kill him or what? And then Nicodemus kind of raised up. He's like, guys, I, no one can do the thing. Like, we haven't seen anyone else do the things that he did. And they're like, Nicodemus, shut up. You're just like him. And kind of cowers down. And he goes away for a while. And we don't see him till the very end of the book of John. John chapter 19, verse 38. After Jesus was killed on a cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, that'd be the Pharisees, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, and Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they, Nicodemus, laid Jesus there. Here's the cool thing about Jesus. He came for the sick, which included the broken, crooked tax collector, and the moralistic Pharisee. And he changes them both. Nicodemus was a changed man and is now a follower of Jesus. That's how good God is. And here we are. Tax collectors, check. Pharisees, check. Who God has redeemed and brought to himself. It's not that the Pharisees were the bad guys and the tax collector was the good guy. It's that we're all the bad guys and Jesus is the good guy, period. May our hope be in him and not in this broken self. So as we receive communion today, as we come to the table, we're invited to a meal and it's a meal Jesus shares with the crooked Pharisee and he'll also share meals with the self-righteous, um, crooked tax collector and the self-righteous Pharisees. He'll invite them both and he'll change both of them. So who you are, where you are, some of you may be coming in a little foggy from last night. Jesus is here to save you. He's here to redeem you. Some of you came in as good moralistic people. Jesus is here to redeem you. And he's here to save you. Let's pray. God, may we just step back from the scripture today. May we be in awe of you. May we be in awe of your power and authority to step in the life of this crooked, no good tax collector and this self-righteous Pharisee Nicodemus. May we see ourselves in that and may our response be, God, thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. And now as people that are changed by him, may we build upon the righteousness that we have been given. And may we live as faithful followers of you in response to your grace and love.
It's the name of Jesus we pray together, amen.